Well, you can open to Psalm 12. We're continuing to work through a number of psalms. And this is another psalm of David. And I'm just going to read through that for us. The superscription of the psalm says, For the choir director upon an eight-stringed lyre, a psalm of David. Psalm 12, verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our mouth or with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. We find that the world that we live in is much the same as that that David lived in. We live in a world that is filled with false promises, with flatterers. You hire someone who promises that he will be the best worker you ever hired, and he turns out, in fact, to be the most incompetent you ever hired. Or a boss says she will compensate you fairly and she'll provide you with a good work environment. But when you show up and you begin working there, you discover that she really doesn't care about her workers. All she cares about is the business's bottom line. Or a family member promises that he won't hurt you like that again, only to find him the very next day doing the same vicious thing that he had done before. Or someone you thought was a friend compliments you to your face. They say how appreciated you are, but then the next day you overhear them gossiping about you. Or a politician promises that he's a man of integrity and he'll work for the people, but once in office you discover that he's a liar who's only seeking to get himself ahead. And as we face these false promises and as we are getting our hopes up and then they are just being dropped out from beneath us, it's easy to get discouraged when you have the rug pulled out from underneath your feet over and over again. And when you see everyone else getting ahead by their lies and you look at your own life, the life of integrity that you've been trying to live and you see yourself being left behind, it can be tempting to adopt the methods of the world. After all, if you don't look out for yourself, who will? And we know that our Lord Jesus was well acquainted with living in such a world. The most obvious example is one of his own disciples betraying him with a kiss. A man who was his friend, a man that he spent three years pouring himself into. And yet, when Jesus is betrayed in such a way, we don't see him responding in kind. Instead, he responds in a way that's completely counter to the rest of the world. 
he entrusted himself to him who judged righteously, and he endured. He relied upon God for his deliverance. And it is that attitude that we see David speak of in writing this 12th Psalm. And we who are believers living in the 21st century, God intends for us to learn from this Psalm how we are to live in a, a world that is full of lies. As we read this psalm, you, you saw the opening that David looks around him and he sees that liars are all that's left. And when we go through this psalm, we're going to find out what do we do when liars are all that's left. And specifically the first four verses, we're going to see some things that are instructive for us on how to respond when liars are all that's left. We'll see that in, the, in verses 1 through 4. The first thing we should do when we see that liars are all that is left is, verses 1 to 2, cry out for help. Cry out for help. Look at verse 1. David says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. David begins with a short two-word prayer. Help, Lord. Help, Yahweh. That word for help is yasha, and it means to help or to save or to deliver. And if I had to guess which prayer would be the most commonly uttered prayer across the ages of, of all of God's people, it would be this prayer, help, Lord. And I know that's certainly true in my own life. I probably pray this prayer dozens of times a week whenever I'm sick, whenever I'm afraid, whenever I'm confused, whenever I feel like I'm in over my head, no matter what the problem is, no matter how big or how little, I find myself praying this prayer, help, Lord, help me. In fact, our Christian lives begin with this prayer, don't they? Save me, Lord, from my sin, from your wrath. And I'm sure that our Christian lives here on earth often end with this prayer. As we're getting ready to meet our Lord face to face, we say, Lord, help me through this last trial. Help me keep trusting in you. Help me honor you as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We are a needy people, and we are constantly in need of our mighty God's help. And this prayer, help, Lord, is constantly on our lips. And whenever we utter it, we find ourselves in good company because this was a prayer that David often cried out. Now, why is David praying this? What is the problem that he's facing that is squeezing this cry out of his soul? He says, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. David needs the Lord's help because he's having a hard time finding a godly man. He's surrounded instead by ungodly people who have it out for him. The word for godly man is chassid, and it comes from the Hebrew word chesed. Anybody remember what chesed means? We looked at it when we were going through the book of Ruth. Anybody remember? Loving kindness, that's right. Chesed means loving kindness. So a chassid is what? Someone who practices loving kindness. Someone who is characterized by being kind and loving and merciful and faithful. 
When we studied the book of Ruth, we saw three people who practiced chesed. We saw three people who could be called uh, chesed. And who were those people? There was Naomi, there was Ruth, and there was Boaz, right? And as we went through that book, we got the sense that such people were a rare breed in those days, in the days of the judges. These people were extraordinary. And things have not changed by the time of David's writing, have they? David speaks as though he can't find a single Hasid anywhere. He looks out upon the sea of humanity around him, and it looks as though the faithful ones have gone extinct. He's like a dodo, the last one of his kind. And this was not a new experience for God's people, was it? The world has been like this ever since the fall of man into sin. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 6, the time of Noah. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But... Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Then look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. There in Genesis 6, we see out of all humanity, there was apparently only one man who found favor in God's sight. There was only one man who was righteous by faith. There was only one man who was blameless before God. There was only one man who actually walked with God out of the whole world. And we see there that David was not the first to experience this loneliness and he would not be the last. Do you remember Elijah, the prophet Elijah, when Jezebel was chasing him after he had that great victory on Mount Carmel, when God showed himself to be the one true living God, and, all, and, and Elijah had that great contest with the false prophets of Baal, and fire fell from heaven uh, upon Elijah's sacrifice while the prophets of Baal, they were cutting themselves, they were they were doing all sorts of crazy things to try to get Baal's attention, but only Elijah's God showed up. But then Jezebel seeks to kill him, and he runs. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, this is what Elijah says after he has fled from Jezebel. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. They seek my life to take it away. 
Now we know God would go on to inform Elijah that he was not quite as alone as he thought he was, but still Elijah being surrounded by evil and being pursued by a wicked queen, he had a hard time seeing anybody else out there who was committed to the Lord like he was. Turn with me to Isaiah 59, where we see God himself expressing astonishment that there are so few who follow him. Isaiah 59, starting in verse 12. Verse 12 of Isaiah 59, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. There's no room in Jerusalem for truth anymore. There's no no place given for uprightness. Verse 15, yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. And then when we get to the New Testament, we are informed that we as believers should not be surprised when we ourselves, like Noah, like David, like Elijah, like the Lord himself expressed, We should not be surprised when we experience such isolation from other godly people. Look over at Matthew 24, where Jesus tells us about what the last days will be like. Matthew 24, and verse 9, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So that's our reality. That's that's the world that we live in. But when there's no one godly, when there's no one faithful around, when they have gone like the dodo, gone extinct, who fills the gap? Back in Psalm 12, David tells us who. He describes them in verse 2. He says, they speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. All that's left are those who speak falsehood to one another. All that's left is a bunch of people who say worthless and lying things to one another. David says that they speak with flattering lips and a double heart. When speaking to you, to your face, they say nice, encouraging things. They butter you up. They make you feel good. They put you at ease. They make you think that they are your friend. But the heart that they are showing you is not the heart that they have. Literally, the Hebrew says they speak with a heart and a heart. 
two different kinds of heart. There's the heart they show you, and then there's the heart they really have. They say one thing, but they secretly plan another. And David, David, no doubt experienced this in spades. He probably wrote this psalm either as the anointed king waiting for God to elevate him to the throne, or he wrote this as someone who was already reigning as king. Either way, people would have had much to gain from flattering him, from telling him to his face what he wanted to hear. It must have been very difficult for him at times to know who he could trust if everyone was just telling him what he wanted to hear. All the time he must have experienced people complimenting him only to find them stabbing him in the back when he wasn't looking. And so he cries for help. The second thing we see that we are to do when when liars are all that's left in verses 3 and 4 is to ask God to intervene. Ask God to intervene. What David is experiencing is obviously incredibly painful to him, and so he prays verse 3. He says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. David refers to these people by the parts of their anatomy that are causing him the most harm. He calls calls them flattering lips. It's like a giant pair of lips just flapping beautiful things at him and at others. He calls them a tongue that speaks great things. And he prays here in verse 3 that God would amputate these offensive appendages, that he would cut them off, that he would exterminate these people. Now, we know that there are two ways in which God works to cut off lying flatterers, right? He either judges them, putting them to death, or he does what? Brings them to faith in himself, transforms them from the inside out, giving them honest lips, giving them humble tongues. I think of Isaiah in chapter 6. Remember, he's given this vision of the Lord in heaven. And how does Isaiah respond when he sees the holiness of God? He says, woe is me, for I am a man of what? Unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then you see one of the heavenly beings, one of the seraphim, go to the altar and get a red-hot coal and bring it to Isaiah and touch his mouth so that his lips are transformed and he can become a spokesman for God. But David asks God to cut off all flattering lips, all proud tongues. And then in the next verse, verse 4, David gives us a sampling of what these flatterers of others and of themselves say. Verse 4, Who have said, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? To these folks that are oppressing David, their ultimate power is where? It's in their tongues. With their tongues, they are able to overpower anyone who gets in their way. And no one can stop them. No one can control what they say. Their lips are their own. To their mind, they can say what they want, when they want, however they want. And they don't think that they're going to have to answer to anyone for how they use their mouths. They say, who is Lord over us? Certainly not God, right, to them. Certainly God is not going to hold them accountable. When God created the world, how did he make it? 
He spoke it into existence, right? He said, let there be light, and there was light. Well, ever since the fall of mankind into sin, man has tried to be God, and man has duped himself into thinking that he can do the same thing with his mouth, with his words, shape reality however he wants, manipulate his surroundings by the power of his lying speech. If I flatter enough people, if I say the right things to the right people, I'll get my way. And certainly it's the case in this country. So David, he asks God to intervene. And David, he is suffocating on all the hot air that is proceeding from these flattering lips, from these godless and faithless liars. So that's what we do when when there's nothing left but liars. Now we come to verses 5 through 8, where the, the, the word of God shines through the fog of flattery and of liars. In verses 5 through 8, we see that when all that's left are liars, we can know, despite that, that truth is all that will remain. The world is full of lies, but we know that at the end, the, the world will be flooded with truth, God's truth. How do we arrive at that place? How do we arrive at the place where we can know that truth is all that will be be left in the future when our present reality is totally contradictory to that? When all we experience right now is a world full of lies and such a future seems so far off, so impossible to get to. How do we arrive at that confidence despite our experience? Well, two things. The first we'll see in verse 5. In order to get to that confidence, that that knowing in our minds and our hearts that God's truth will prevail, we first have to listen to God's promises. And that's what happens in verse 5. God just speaks. David doesn't even introduce him at first. You just see the word of God cut through all the lies that, that have been surrounding David. And the word of God, the voice of God comes to David and God speaks a promise to him. Verse 5. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. We see in verse 5 that God sees the devastation that's being inflicted upon the godly and the faithful ones like David. God hears their groanings and he cares He cares. God is not some cold deity standing afar off, hearing in the background some cries and then just not caring about it. No, God cares, and he cares so much that he rises from his throne to rescue his people. Just like there has always been a world full of flattering lips and proud tongues since the fall, there has, at the same time, always been God who is ready and willing and active to redeem and deliver his people. I showed you how the world has always been full of lies since the fall. Let me show you now how God has always been present to deliver his people. Let's go to Exodus chapter 2. And obviously we know this is The context of this is the Israelites, they are in bondage in Egypt. 
Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. The verse goes on to say, And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Now look at chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them. Isn't that amazing that the God of heaven and earth, the God who needs nothing, needs no one, he comes down to deliver his weak people. I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to Bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now let's go to Judges chapter 10. This is after God has brought the Israelites into that promised land, just like he promised. And you know that Judges recounts for us an ongoing cycle. Remember, the the Israelites, they would forget God, they would rebel against God, and then to chastise them, God would raise up peoples around them to oppress them. And then the Israelites, having been humbled, they would cry out to God again, and, and God would deliver them. Judges 10, verse 10. This has happened again. Verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also, when the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mayanites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. You get, you get the idea. You know, it's, it seems as though there was an end to the patience of God. He said, I've delivered you all of these times, and every single time you turn against me again, and then I, I chastise you again, and then you cry out to me again, and I deliver you again, and then you forget me again. And he says, well, guess what? I'm done. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the name of your distress. If you think they're so attractive that you keep going back to them even after I have so graciously delivered you, cry out to them. Maybe they can help you. Verse 15, the sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And how does God respond? He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. He says, I'm done. But then he hears the cries of his people again. And he can't help himself. 
You see, God is not a God who stands afar off. He's not aloof. He's not unfeeling toward us. He is a God who weeps at the suffering of his people and who rises up to defend and deliver them. And of course, we see this in our Lord Jesus, right? The one who reveals who God is to us. Remember John 11, when Lazarus dies, Jesus sees the affliction that death has inflicted upon his loved ones, and he weeps, and then he acts, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Or Matthew 9, verse 36, when Jesus sees the Israelites wandering around like a sheep without a shepherd. It says that he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited. You see, just as a loving father is moved to action by the cries of his children, so God is moved by the cries of his people. Have you ever seen those YouTube videos where uh, it says something like, I don't know, uh, famous dad rescues? You know, you see these fathers who don't look athletic, they don't look all that brave, but when their child is in danger, all of a sudden they become like Captain America and they, they just rise up and they rescue their child because they're driven by the the loving heart of a father. Well, how much more is that the case with our Heavenly Father? Charles Spurgeon commenting on how God says in Psalm 12, verse 5, Now I will arise. Spurgeon says this, quote, What virtue is there in a poor man's size that they should move the Almighty God to arise from his throne? Unquote. God here declares that he will rise and he will set his afflicted sons and daughters in the safety for which they are crying out in the midst of those who are afflicting them. So we need to listen. We need to listen to God's promises. The second thing we need to do to arrive at that place where we know that despite we're living in a world where all that's left are liars, To get to that place where we know that truth is all that will remain, we have to stand on those promises. We have to stand on God's word. We see that in the last last three verses of this psalm, verses 6 through 8. Now, as I said, David was not a stranger to false promises, right? No doubt the flatterers around him, they were always promising and rarely delivering. Well, who has just made a promise to David? David lives in a world where he's constantly being promised things and the bottom is falling out of those promises constantly. Now he has just heard a promise in verse 5. And when you've been burned so many times, you might think, oh, that's quite a promise God just made me. Will God follow through when nobody else has followed through? Or will he just be another flatterer, speaking worthless things? Verse 6, look at what David says. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Refining silver is the process by which any impurities, any worthless materials are extracted from the silver ore, so that only pure silver is, is left. 
So you mine the silver and you've got the silver, but there's a whole bunch of other junk mixed in with it. And in order to, to get the silver by itself, you, you melt everything down and all of the dross, all of the worthless materials that is lighter rises to the top so that it can be skimmed off, so that all that is left is the pure silver. And repeated refining would result in a purer result. When David describes God's word as refined seven times, that number seven represents what? It's, it's the perfect number. It represents perfection, completion. David is saying, in other words, that God's word is completely pure. There is no dross in it. There is no worthless material in it. There is nothing there that is false. There is no flattery in it. It's pure. When the flatterers say something, you never know if you can rely upon what they've said. But when God says something, you can rest your whole weight upon it because there is not one speck of falsehood in the word of God. David is saying here, in other words, what God just said to me in verse 5, I know that that will happen. I know that God will do what he has said because his word is pure. There is nothing defective in it. In verse 7, David expresses that confidence, doesn't he? Verse 7, he says, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. You will keep the afflicted. You will preserve your needy people. You will rescue them from this wicked generation. There's no doubt in David's mind that God has heard his cries and the cries of every one of his faithful people. And there's no doubt in David's mind that God will act to rescue them. But then comes verse 8, which seems like a, a sour note to end the psalm on. And in light of verse 8, this confidence that David has just expressed in verse 7 would almost seem to be misplaced. What does verse 8 say? He says, The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. He's saying there in verse 8 that when society calls good evil and evil good, when people encourage wrongdoing and they give hearty approval to those who practice wickedness, when those are the conditions in society, the wicked strut about like a rooster. They are cocky. They have no fear because no one's doing anything about it. No one's holding them accountable. And when we as believers in Jesus Christ see that, it can be tempting to wonder if God really does hear us, if he really is getting up off his throne to rescue us. I mean, how can I trust the word of God when I see all these people who have rejected the word of God flourishing and the ones who are not flourishing are the ones who are believing what God has said. How can I keep believing when God's rescue seems so far off? When I see believers suffering and dying, how can I believe that God is going to rescue when I do not see that rescuing happening? Well, let's go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, because 
Here we see the psalmist named Asaph wrestling with that exact thing. And I love this psalm because he's so raw, he's so vulnerable, he's so honest. He just lays it out there. He's not trying to look good for anybody. He's just saying, this is what I was struggling with and this is what I have found in the midst of those struggles. Psalm 73. Listen to what Asaph says. Verse 1, he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's, that's the truth that we are to stand on. That is, that is what God's word says. But verse 2, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. So that truth he just said in verse 1, he says in verse 2, I almost stopped believing that. I almost gave up on that. Why? Verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. Verse 9, they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Does that sound familiar? Verse 10, therefore... His people, that is, the people of the wicked, return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Apparently not, because nobody's stopping them from doing what they're doing. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. And this is the conclusion Asaph is tempted to draw from what he's seeing. Verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Verse 1, is it really true? God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Verse 15, Asaph says, If I had said I will speak thus, that is, if he began to believe the lie that he was being tempted to embrace, and he began spreading that around to other people, he says, Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. But then verse 17, Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Up until now, Asaph has just been looking at things from a human perspective, a temporal perspective. But when he sets foot into the sanctuary of God, he begins to look at things from God's perspective, which is really the only perspective that matters. And this is what he comes to understand. Verse 18, surely you set them, that is the wicked, who seem to die fat and happy. He says, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. The free and easy life that the wicked have in this world is a dream. And when they die, they wake up to a harsh reality. 
that God will hold them accountable. Verse 21, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. He's describing his, his fleshly thinking leading up to this, this epiphany that he had. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. As a true believer, God was preserving Asaph's faith. He went to the brink of unbelief, but God was holding his hand and only let him get so far, and then he gently drew Asaph back to what the truth was. Verse 24, with your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. Why should he be envious of what the wicked have when he has God himself? Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You see, until Asaph saw things in the light of eternity, he did not see how he could keep trusting God's word. If you think that this world is all there is, you will lose heart. You will not be able to persevere in faith. But when you understand, like Asaph did, that there is a day of judgment coming when God will make all things right and he will call all evil to account. And when you understand that God's salvation of believers is primarily an eternal salvation, he's saving us for more than the here and now. When you understand all that, and when you understand that God designs for his children to encounter many trials before bringing us to that glorious eternity to shape us to be more like Jesus, when you understand that, then you can see the utter reliability of God's word. The early Christians, they had that eternal perspective that enabled them to look beyond the veil of the here and now. Turn to Acts chapter 4. This is the last place we're going today. Acts chapter 4. We're looking at verses 23 to 31. And the context here is Peter and John, the apostles, they have just been arrested for preaching the gospel. And this arrest, this is the very first taste of persecution that the church faces. Let me read chapter 4, starting in verse 23 of Acts. When they had been released, that is Peter and John, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats 
and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They have just had their first taste of persecution. And with that first taste of persecution, gone would be any illusions that fulfilling the Great Commission would be this giant love fest that would just effortlessly flood over the whole world. No, now they understood this is going to be hard. This is going to be painful. And what did they do in response to that wake-up call? Did they just give up? No, they comforted, them, they comforted themselves. How did they comfort themselves? They comforted themselves by the word of God, right? Verse 24, they said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea. In other words, they were confessing, God, you are on your throne, even though our brothers were jailed. You are still on your throne. Nothing has changed. And then they quoted from Psalm 2. They were saying that we see, God, that you foretold that this would happen. In other words, the apostles getting jailed, that doesn't mean things are off track. That doesn't mean things are, have, have gone askew and that this whole mission will fail. No, they said everything is right on track. God is doing everything just like he said. They took on that eternal perspective, which enabled them to press on despite the fact that they were surrounded by wickedness. Today, we, we still live in that evil world that is dominated by flatterers and liars and boasters. And when we see the proud words of these people prevailing upon the earth and in our society, it can be tempting to think that we should listen to them instead of to God because it looks like they are winning. Like Asaph, we, had to, we have to take a step back. We have to come here on a Sunday morning and hear the word of God preached and be reminded of what God's perspective is on things, that surely he has set them in slippery places. But when I wake up, I will be with the Lord, and he is with me, and with him I have everything I need. They can take the world, but give me Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the eternal perspective that it gives to us. Lord, the nearness of our God is our good. We thank you that you are near. And Jesus promised that as we fulfill the Great Commission, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, that when the wicked seem to prevail, we are not to lose hope because the God who holds history in his hands is right there with us. And he will arise and he will bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom. And Lord, anybody who is here who are still characterized by flattering lips and lying hearts, Lord, may you convict them. May you give them this eternal perspective for the very first time. Help them to see themselves as standing in slippery places and if they trip, they will slide into the pit of hell, and the day is coming when they will trip. But there is a Savior who is offering salvation to them and forgiveness and life, and his name is Jesus, and he 
died on the cross in the place of sinners and rose from the dead so that all who would turn to him in repentance and faith would be saved. Help them to turn to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.